Welcome to a special Reformation edition of A Word from the Edge, Faith, Religion, and Spiritual Community at the Edge of Secular Culture. I'm Brother Richard Edward Helmer, Rector of Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California, and your host. As we remember this year the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, I engaged Dr. Dryden Little and members of the parish in conversation about a complicated, turbulent point in the history of Western Europe that radically transformed Christianity at its place in society throughout the West. Dr. Little opens with windows into the actions of Martin Luther and the consequences of the reforming zeal of a movement that he unleashed, a movement that would echo across the generations. Then I pick up the thread and explore the opening of the English Reformation, its indelible impact on our contemporary tradition as Anglicans and as Episcopalians, and above all as Christians who are marked with a reforming fervor in our spiritual DNA. So good morning. It's great to see you all here, and I, I want to uh, begin by thanking uh, Dryden Little, first of all, because we had originally scheduled to do this in mid-October, but uh, thanks to the prerogatives of the travel gods and airlines, I ended up um, overnighting at a seedy hotel in Philadelphia, rather than getting back here on time for our presentation. So. I want to thank Dryden again for his patience and his perseverance in sticking with us um, as we rescheduled this, and to all of you for being here today. Over to you, Dryden. Thank you. The Reformation. I love the way uh, Richard introduced this with the last hymn of our service. You probably noticed it was, A Mighty Fortress uh, is Our God. And that really, uh, very much Luther's style, very muscular Christianity, in a very very solid way with words, as we'll find out as we go through this discussion. I put this up so that people could have a quick understanding of this dispute that Martin Luther raised, uh, which changed the face of Christendom. The word Christendom is a word you don't hear nowadays, but it was a united Christendom until Martin Luther. So historians do consider that the Reformation was one of the defining events of Western civilization many such defining events, but let's, let's accept that for the moment. Last month was the quincentenary. We missed it. If it hadn't been for Richard, we'd have been right on the dot on the quincentenary, Richard. It hadn't been Never for American mind. Airlines. I just want to... <laughs> it gave me a chance to actually look at the thesis because we were in Santa Fe and I came across in a, in a little uh, church there the whole text of his thesis, his 95 thesis. So I was able to read them all. I extracted a few. I've got some more written down there. These are the significant ones. But why did this Reformation happen? Uh, there was no unique cause. There never is a unique cause for any historical event. But there were necessary conditions for a challenge to the church authority. These conditions favored radical change in the church and been developing for hundreds of years from the humanistic city-states in Italy uh, for a very long period of time where people challenged this idea of a papacy, a pope who was supposedly a descendant of St. Peter, therefore had the keys to heaven. Therefore, you could not challenge such a person who had the keys to heaven, could you? 
Um, so, uh, we, what were the necessary conditions? We had, in 16th century Germany, we had a fertile ground for ideas for church reform. This enabled an initial protest to swell rapidly into a movement that broke the unity of Christendom and the supremacy of the Pope. Now, why then? The papacy had, in fact, survived many such challenges over the previous hundreds of years. We had, uh, we had the movement to um, Avignon in the 14th century, where the French papacy took charge. We had, at one stage, later on that century, three popes. And then we had the ultimate challenge to the power of the pope, which was a, a council where it was decided that there would be no single CEO. There would be a group of bishops who would uh, run the church. This was a general council which would administer the church collectively. But, so how come after all these challenges, an obscure monk called Martin Luther could make the difference? I don't know if you saw a PBS documentary called The Monk Who Changed the World. Did he change the world? I think we're inclined to give too much credit to human agency. Can one person change the world? But without Luther and his great idea, the Reformation may have taken a completely different form, and we may have avoided the rupture of ancient Christendom and the consequences that we live with today. So if it had taken a different form, we don't know what would have happened, but we, knew, we know that uh, with Luther, he was uniquely equipped to be a spiritual and a political leader. And with all the conditions we had in Germany at the time, his intervention was sufficient to disrupt medieval Christendom. So this was the great event that changed the world. Germany. Why Germany? From the map, you can see all the fragmentation. There was no such thing as a German nation. All these were little prince bishoprics and uh, cities that were ruled by the, by the emperor's uh, chosen elector. These electors, and there were seven electors, who owed their position to the emperor. The emperor was the was a, traditionally a Habsburg, the Holy Roman Emperor. And this is important to recognize the world had always been divided in two with the Holy Roman Emperor leading the temporal world and the Pope, the spiritual world. The two together kept the world together. Sometimes they were rivals and, and had conflicts, but typically they were the unifying factors of Christendom. The Emperor and the Pope. Now, these, during uh, this time, 1517, with the uh, indulgence pieces, it just so happened that a new emperor was about to be appointed. He inherited the dynastic territories of the Habsburgs from his grandfather, Maximilian I. He also, at the same time, inherited the territories of his Spanish grandparents, Ferdinand, Ferdinand and Isabel, 
That together, putting these two empires together, he controlled most of the world except for France. The French didn't like that, of course, so France is the one who was determined to stop Charles, who was Charles V was his name, becoming emperor, and not yet another Habsburg emperor. But Charles had enlisted the help of the Augsburg bankers, the famous bankers of the time. These bankers provided enough money for him to sweeten the terms to the electors, I bribe the electors, so they would vote for him to be the next Holy Roman Emperor. But meanwhile, Luther, there was no unitary or no, uh, no ability to control the situation in Wittenberg and the small German states. Luther was able to develop momentum without interference from the emperor, the boy emperor, 17 years of age at the time. So his defiance, Luther's defiance, was left relatively unchallenged. So the German states, they were among the most prosperous communities in Europe. But they were always suspicious of Italian popes, and they felt their money, their taxes, were being drained to Rome, very much like the Germans today feel that we're financing uh, Italians and Greeks out of the German budget. We prudent Germans are saving, we're thrifty. Why should we be sending money to Rome? They had the similar feeling. Stereotypes never, never really change. But they also, the Germans also remembered the Borgia popes. Remember, the Borgia popes were really Spaniards. They were Catalans. But the Borgia popes brought the papacy into terrible disrepute. When Luther was writing his thesis, he was faced with Pope Leo X. Now, Pope Leo X is famous for saying, since God has given us the papacy, let us enjoy it. And that was the idea of the papacy. They felt they could do anything. So anti-clericism was rife. And the corruption of the church clergy was just as bad as at the papal court. So this corruption caused a crisis of confidence. How could you believe in a church as a means of salvation and consolation when the church was so corrupt? But the church was no more corrupt than it had been in the past. So it wasn't a sufficient condition for the uprising. Luther was clever in understanding the need for political power and political support. He had the support of Frederick the Wise, his elector, who happened to be an elector to vote for the Holy Roman Emperor. And that part of the reason why Charles let the momentum build up, he needed the votes of all the electors to become the next Holy Roman Emperor. He couldn't antagonize them. Frederick, supporting Luther, because Luther was a prominent uh, professor at the new university, which had been funded by, uh, by Frederick at Wittenberg. So this is where it starts. You have the combination of money, power, and Luther's ideas. This combination was eventually irresistible. So what were his ideas, and why did he succeed? Whereas his predecessors, remember Huss and Wycliffe, they ended on the bonfire. But 
The 1500s were a time of extraordinary change. From 1480 to 1490, first the Portuguese, then the Spaniards were discovering a new world. They were discovering, they are reading, re, oh, they were discovering that the universe was much bigger than anyone, anyone would have thought. The humanists also had been rediscovering the classicists, the Greeks. And this was even before Copernicus and Kepler had shown that we were not the center of the universe. So people were more questioning about centering religion on the papacy. Humanists, like Erasmus and Cardinal Cisneros in Spain, had translated the New Testament into Latin. And this corrected much of the old Vulgate, St. Jerome's Bible from the 4th century. So this opened the door for scripture-centered faith. Above all, the invention of movable type in the 1550s, the 1450s, this allowed the transmission of the written word at remarkable speed. You all probably know his history as an Augustinian monk and his moment of epiphany in the monastery. He left the monastery to teach at Wittenberg. Uh, Prince Fred Frederick had enticed him there as a great scholar. And he was confronted in Wittenberg by a Dominican. He was an Augustinian. Augustinians, Dominicans, didn't get on. This man was called Tetzel. He was going around the parish shaking his, uh, his receptacle for money to raise indulgences in the parish. These indulgences had been assigned as security for a loan for, from the Fugger bankers, the same bankers who were financing Charles V. This was to finance the building of a new St. Peter's. Now, what were indulgences? They, they were a partial remission and forgiveness of sins by the church. That is, only the church could bestow God's grace in return for a charitable gift. Um, you can look back at uh, there's a couple of these indulgences, uh, criticisms of indulgences. Everyone knew about purgatory. Every, the educated had read Dante, and they were terrified of purgatory. So this was a great lever for the papacy and the church to raise money. But Luther said, where does this purgatory come from? There's nothing in the Bible about purgatory. He considered that this, these indulgences were blasphemous. So he nailed the famous 95 Theses, so supposedly, to the church door at Wittenberg. This was his disputation concerning penitence and indulgences. Initially, the uh, theses were sent to his archbishop, of course. He wasn't radically doing it without permission. Went to the archbishop, who surveyed them. It was a statement of the true nature of penitence and as a protest against the sale of indulgences. But before he knew it, perhaps he didn't know it, pamphlets were printed and circulated and distributed all over Germany in their thousands, so everyone knew it. Translated into German. 
This was the beginning of the modern German language. All these states spoke different dialects of German. So what was meant initially as an academic dispute quickly turned into a scandal, then a political crisis, and within a decade, the largest mass rebellion Europe had ever seen. So this is the document that started the Reformation. Or was it? His attack on indulgences threatened the church's income and its nature as an institution and an institution of God the judge. Yet historians would like to say that really very early 1520 may have been a better date because at that point he published an address to the emperor, Charles, and the Christian nobility of the German nation. Note the word nation. He called them the German nation. They were not a state, but they were a nation of people who had a similar culture. And he also published a treatise concerning Christian liberty. These were more fundamental than the thesis. Up until then, he was still looking for compromise. And always with the support of the German nobility. That was his political understanding. In his address to the German nobility, he attacked what he called the three defensive walls of the Romanists. One wall placed spiritual power above temporal power. This temporal power had no jurisdiction over spirituality. Another wall said only the Pope could interpret scripture. And the third one, checkmate, said that if the Pope was threatened with a council to decide who should run the church, only the Pope could call one. So that was the end of debate as far as the Pope was concerned. So Luther's theses were sent to Rome and a commission was appointed to discuss the issues raised. But this began the process that led to Luther's excommunication. In 1521, at the Diet of Worms, the German prince electors met together with bishops, a papal nuncio, and the emperor as presiding prosecutor. The, his accusers made the prescient point that if individual cons consciences were sovereign, how can Christians ever again agree on anything? Luther was given the opportunity to recant his heresy and famously said, here I stand, I can do no more, so help me God. He was then left under a safe conduct from the emperor, but was famously spirited away by Frederick the Wise to his castle at Wartburg. He spent the next year or two in the castle, hidden away from the world, translating the Bible into German. The word was made available to all, he said. The gloves were off, and he condemned the papal antichrist. Got a nice picture of him. There he is, the papal crown, that lovely free tiara crown. If I can make just a quick point, this is actually taking a scene from the book of Revelation, where the whore of Babylon rides on the great beast. And here, the whore of Babylon is recast as the pope. Well, at that point, he published his tract called 
the Babylonian captivity. Um, the artists of many of the woodcuts that were printed throughout Germany at the time were very famous. Lucas Cranach and Albert Durer, they were friends of Luther, and a whole propaganda machine started to work, churning out these prints, attacking the Pope and the papacy in Rome, and really giving them a hard time. And he then wrote his last attempt uh, to compromise with the papacy, called The Liberty of a Christian Man. This was written to Pope Leo X, and this is where he laid down his doctrine of justification, which we're coming to. That's his big idea, the doctrine of justification. Justification by faith alone. His opening paragraph seeks to blame the Pope's foolish and tyrannical predecessors and corrupt court. Not the Pope, but his court. The court was more corrupt than Babylon or Sodom. You, Leo, he wrote, are sitting like a lamb in the midst of wolves, and with Ezekiel you dwell among scorpions. It is, is it not true that there is nothing under the vast heavens more corrupt, more pestilential, more hateful than the court of Rome? She who was formerly the gate of heaven is now an open mouth of hell. But then he asked the Pope, his most important question. By what means does man become justified, free, and a true Christian? The just shall live by faith, for the word of God cannot be honored by any works, but by faith alone. Good works, he wrote. Do not make a good man, but a good man does good work. Hypocrites do good works to seem righteous. Good works come from faith. Now, this was a revolutionary doctrine. It created an unbridgeable divide and the splitting asunder of a doctrinally uniform Christendom. Grace and free forgiveness was a dangerous doctrine for the church. Here we have pre-Luther, a cycle where you see the church is in the middle, Everything has to be done through the priest. Absolution, uh, penance, purgatory, heaven, the whole circle. Sin is always there. Sin is persistent in the human condition. It can be worked out through penance. And this is where the indulgences came in. How do we, how do we get rid of sin? How do we get out of purgatory? Penance. Pay for it. This, for Luther, was blasphemy. You're paying God to get into heaven? That's what it amounted to. So, these principles, really, that salvation, or justification, as he called it, comes directly from God. Good works wouldn't affect God's mercy. It couldn't be earned and no priesthood was necessary to intervene between God and the individual. And there's no need for priestly interpretation of the Bible. Directly from God, justification forgives sin for the chosen. He, 
his commentaries uh, during his translation of the Bible noted that it was only scripture and faith that counted. Sola scriptura and sola faith. These are these two concepts. Scripture and faith is what justifies humankind. This unleashed a huge cataclysm. He had rejected papal authority. He believed that the only authority in spiritual matters was the believer's conscience, bound by scripture. Thus, different interpretations were made possible by different groups. There was no longer one interpretation of a united Christendom. But he was full of contradictions. He, he didn't approve of the use of reason to reach wisdom, which Thomas Aquinas had said was a gift from God, reason. He also fell out with the humanists like Erasmus. Erasmus was an early, an early example of a challenge to the church. He had ridiculed the church well before Luther. And famous aphorism was that Erasmus laid the egg which Luther hatched. Erasmus wrote that Luther's teachings on grace, that's Erasmus, gentle soul from Rotterdam, very close friend of Thomas More, and he also taught Henry VIII, and we'll get to that later. He taught Henry VIII Latin, considered Henry VIII one of the great scholars of his age before he went downhill. So Erasmus thought that Luther's teachings on grace left no room for personal responsibility. And it threatened moral anarchy. And it raised the question, could God be blamed for human actions? Just like Homer, when he challenged the polytheistic gods, they were always to blame for human action. Luther, he may have opened up the world, but he also closed it to ideas that conflicted with his truth. His uncompromising certainties attacked the free speculations of humanists such as Erasmus. Erasmus had believed in free will. Luther said, no, no, no free will. Luther was essentially deterministic. Grace came directly from God to the chosen few. God's grace would provide a cloak of righteousness to protect those chosen from their faults. For Luther, sin was a big feature of our condition. And humans had to fight a diabolical tendency to evil. He had a very low opinion of humans. He said they were like a dung heap covered in snow. He had a real crude use of language. I was looking at, because uh, we went to the performance of Hamlet, uh, of the ADT recently, and you know the speech about Hamlet's speech, what a piece of work is man. A noble reason. A paragon of animals. But to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Similar idea, but more pleasantly put. Funnily enough, the fictional Hamlet in Shakespeare also studied at Wittenberg, Luther's University. I find that a curious coincidence. You remember Hamlet's uncle, Mary's mother, and Hamlet said he would never to heaven go. That he had no chance of salvation. Pure evil was a recognized trait. Perhaps Shakespeare even designed Hamlet of Lutheran tendencies. 
Luther didn't question the relationship between ruler and rule. This was his political cleverness. He supported his rulers and was not a political revolutionary. He was a spiritual revolutionary. He was a man of unquestioning certainty. Dangerous people, men with unquestioning certainty. He had an alliance with the civil powers in Germany that helped to spread the Reformation. He looked to the city magistrates to impose religion. Ministers were paid by the state. And the state also maintained the churches. But Luther's concern to be aligned with the nobles resulted in his worst decision. This was the Peasants' War, which began in 1524. They were really town guildsmen and tenant farmers rebelling against rising rents. But they looted and defaced altars. They sacked monasteries and churches. And the rebellion spread throughout Germany. They were responding to Luther's condemnation of images and relics. And they believed that he was encouraging iconoclasm. But not a bit of it. He wrote a violent condemnation in a tract entitled Against the Murdering, Thieving Hordes of Peasants. It would be just, he wrote, to kill the mad dogs. And it was time for the sword, stab, smite, and slay whoever you can. His only excuse was his need for the support of the secular princes. He needed them to support the new church, and the peasants were a threat to stability. But the nobility went around hiring mercenaries and an army, and they killed an estimated 80,000 peasants. This will ever be a stain on Lutheran's character. Violence then erupted in many towns and continued to dominate religious differences for long after Luther. The egg he had hatched released the diabolical tendency he had predicted. We always talk about the Reformation, but in fact, there were several Reformations. After Luther, we had Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich. We had Calvin in Geneva. Zwingli had similar ideas to Luther, but for him, the Eucharist was only a commemoration of Christ without the transubstantiation of Orthodox Catholicism. Calvin also saw no physical connection, but a spiritual presence. Luther, however, had believed in real presence, consubstantiation, he called it. The substance of the bread and wine coexists with the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. There were huge controversies over the real presence. Many years afterwards, Calvin came up with the concept believing God had predestined some to be saved. He called them the elect others to be damned. This was his double predestination. He said, we can do nothing to change where we go in afterlife. God determined this. He also stressed, like Luther, the sole authority of Scripture, but with an Old Testament vision of God, of God with the terror of his mystery rather than the love of his mercy. Moral censorship was the essence of his church. The Swiss churches were part of the state, with pastors and elders, laymen, who enforced discipline. 
This was like where I come from, Scotland. We had our disciple of Calvin called John Knox. He carried his discipline much further than Calvin. I can remember many a smack. He hounded the French Catholic retinue of Mary, Queen of Scots, and eventually had her imprisoned. Her son, King James VI, or as the English like to say, James I, was a virtual prisoner of the Protestant Presbytery. He was raised as a Presbyterian. But when he moved to England, ha-ha, he rejoiced in the company of bishops and high Anglicans and promoted that beautiful King James's Bible. Many groups and movements emerged from the chaos of Luther's Reformation with their own interpretation of Scripture and all defied the hierarchies of the Church. A consequence was a century of brutal religious violence until finally exhausted, a notion of tolerance was accepted at the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, a hundred years later. So Germany had lost its chance of forging a nation-state until the 19th century, and we know what happened. But it had lost its trade, much of its population, devastated during these upheavals, the Peasants' Revolt, the Counter-Reformation, and the Thirty Years' War. Even today, Germany has a deep fear of chaos and disorder. To understand the present, we need to understand the past. Indeed, it's impossible to understand modern Europe without understanding the 16th century Christian upheavals. Father Richard, you're on. <laughs> Thank you, Dryden. So I get to pick up the thread here a little bit by talking about the English Reformation. And um, I, I want to bookend this or, or shape or frame this a little bit to see the English Reformation um, like the Continental Reformation in that it was not a single moment, but it was a convergence of a series of factors that led uh, to a tectonic shift in the social, political, and theological orders of the day. And um, the English Reformation is curious because it actually starts out with resistance to what's going on on the continent. There's, there's, you can't get away from English pride. Well, we're not as bad as they are. You can't get away from the notion that we're going to be more civilized than they are being. But um, we also have to understand that the English church was connected with the continental church deeply in that it had been infected with the same DNA of reform as everywhere else had been. And I want to point out something that I, I want to do some more investigation at some point. Maybe I can talk with you about this, Dryden. But I'm intrigued by Luther's religious life that was just prior to him taking the academic position in Wittenberg because the Augustinian monks were on a branch of mendicant orders that dated back to the time of St. Francis. The other mendicant orders, of course, were the Franciscans and the Dominicans, and although they fought like cats and dogs with each other, they were infected with a reforming zeal. They were on the ground, in the churches, with the people, and they were always a foil, always a foil for the governing authorities of the church and always quick to speak up about corruption in the church. 
In addition to that, I think we can see that happening in England, but more to the point, English jurisprudence, being as independent as it was long before Henry VIII and the Tudor dynasty, had laws that would later be used to enact the formal elements of the English Reformation. Key among these was a law against premunire, which was about protecting the supremacy of the English monarch. And what that meant was that no alien jurisdiction, including the papacy, could overrule the British monarch on any element of British civil law. And that law was already on the books by the 14th century. And as we'll see in a moment, that became a key tool for Henry and his advisors and the parliaments under them to weaken Rome's authority, um, ultimately not only over the people, but over the clergy as well. But I have to get in my little dose of English pride. If we're going to talk about the Reformation, we need to go back not to Luther, but to John Wycliffe, one of his inspirations. John Wycliffe was a 14th century priest. He was connected with Oxford. He was an academic. And he was a reformer by nature. Uh, some historians think he was moved um, by not only clergy corruption, but by the consequence of a plague that greatly decimated the clergy um, towards the end of the 13th and into the early 14th century. And what that led to um, was a shortage of learning and a high level of understanding amongst the clergy. So it left the clergy especially ripe for corruption. And um, so what happened then, this really galvanized Wycliffe to stand up. And he was noticed politically, and in fact, he was drawn in because of his academic learning into at least one conflict between the crown and the papacy. But Wycliffe's teachings are eerie because they're all the seeds of the Reformation. In addition to being a critic of the corruption of the late medieval church and clergy, he was trying to shut the door in his own way on scholasticism. He was heavily opposed to the sale of indulgences and uh, what were called annates, which were annual shares or portions collected by the clergy that would go directly to Rome and then also the practice of simony, which was the sale of church offices. He promoted a return to scripture and the Bible and the vernacular. In fact, this is probably what most of you will remember if you remember your history about Wycliffe at all. He started a translation of scripture into the vernacular English, and he was very interested in increasing local and national autonomy regarding matters of faith. And he promoted sola scriptura, this notion of the primacy of the Bible as the final arbiter of authority. He was also an early proponent of predestination. So you can see how he influenced and inspired Luther, and also another reformer, John Hus, who predated Luther in uh, what is now Eastern Germany. Why didn't his movement succeed, though? Perhaps he was a man before his time. Perhaps he got a little bit too much in the face of some of the aristocracy and the courts. And as we discover in the time of Henry VIII, Henry VIII is just one piece in a very complicated political dynamic in the court 
of England that brings about the English Reformation. But the seeds that Wycliffe left included a movement that became known in a derogatory way as the Lollards. Lollardy was very common in England. It was often on the ground, um, at least according to the historical record we have, amongst the uneducated and people who were still finding at least fragments of Wycliffe's translation to read for themselves and praying in English rather than the language of the church, Latin. All right, so now we have to talk about our crazy uncle. This is a picture of a young Henry and his new bride, Catherine of Aragon. And I want us to think about the English Reformation not as a single moment, but actually more like a tide that is coming in. And as the tide comes in, the waves come to the shore, and then they go back out. And then they come back a little bit further, and then they go back out. And then they come in a little further each time. This is sort of the dynamic that develops under Henry VIII. It's actually hard to say that Henry was ever truly a Protestant. In fact, I would argue he wasn't. He was, however, influenced heavily by one of his teachers, Erasmus. So there was a reforming side to Henry and an eagerness for learning that stemmed from the Renaissance. But he was also very concerned about what he saw unfolding on the continent. And we have to understand Henry's motivations were not just to have a lot of women and have a male heir, but to stabilize the reign that his father had bought at great cost at the end of the War of the Roses. This would forever haunt Henry. And if we can be a little bit charitable towards Henry, at least in his youth, he was a child of trauma, just like many of the crown heads of England. And he was, if anything, eager to stabilize his dynasty and stabilize the country for the sake of the English people. So Luther was seen very early on in his reign as a threat and in 1521, Henry, uh, probably with some help from Bishop Fisher of Rochester, defended Rome against Luther's charge of heresy. And for that, the Pope decreed that Henry was a defender of the faith. So that put him on the map as far as the papacy was concerned. However, that same year, a young woman with a sharp tongue and a wit and a brain probably as brilliant as Henry's arrives at court, Anne Boleyn. Her family had been heavily influenced by Lutheran reforms. And this was to set up the dynamic in Henry's court that would dominate his reign. By the late 1520s, Henry began to be motivated to move against Rome but his motivations were complicated. He needed, of course, to address his need for a male heir. Catherine was unable to give him one, or so he thought. And that involved then into a suspicion that his marriage to Catherine was fundamentally flawed or compromised. And it's hard to know sort of what the carts and horses were in his line of thinking, but there's evidence that he, he eventually reached a point of crisis of conscience. Catherine had been married to his brother, Arthur, before he died, if you remember. 
And although um, all the evidence says that the marriage was never consummated, Henry began to have his doubts. The other thing that happened is that one of Henry's great advisors and mentors, Archbishop Wolsey, fell from grace. And that was as a result of a charge of Premonore, that Wolsey had given more allegiance to Rome than he had to his king. And so that cast another long shadow of doubt over Henry's trust in Rome and the Curia. And then Henry, most historians say, was always subject to the whims of his advisors. He was always listening very attentively to them. So you can take Henry's reign apart by looking at who are his closest advisors at any given time. And with the demise of Wolsey, this was an opportunity then for Protestants, especially Thomas Cromwell, to move in. And along with him also came Thomas Cramner, who was listening very carefully to what Henry was saying about his marriage. And Cramner was the academic above all academics among them. And he became a linchpin in trying to press Henry's argument that his marriage to Catherine should be annulled. And then, of course, there was Anne, Anne Boleyn, who was constantly catching Henry's eye. And she was always teasing him out of being subject to any other power but his own. She was a force of nature. And finally, there was Henry's general disdain for the influence of Charles V. His own political ambitions, that's Henry's ambitions to secure the Tudor dynasty militarily as well as politically. And Charles V was another complicating factor because Catherine was his aunt. Oops. So the papacy was actually caught with Henry's request for an annulment in a bit of a dilemma. Henry had been faithful to Rome. On the other hand, Charles V had been a major political problem for Rome. In fact, memory serves, Dryden, correct me if I'm wrong, Charles V had invaded Rome just prior to this and so posed a political threat so that the papacy did not want to undo the marriage if they could help it. And in addition to that, there had to have been already a dispensation from the pope for Henry to marry Catherine to begin with. So for a pope to undo that was to undo the workings of a previous pope, which was to question the authority of the church. Do you get the dilemma? All right. Anyway, the pope said no. And Henry decided to press for his annulment through the English legal system. And this became the presenting issue of what became known as the Reformation Parliament of 1529. And that was the beginning of Parliament doing something that had never been done before, and that was to radically take on the power of the clergy. And this is where that law around premanure became key. Because now Henry and lawmakers could sue clergy for their support. And indeed, that's exactly what they did. And through a series of maneuvers, he got the recognition of the clergy that he was supreme head of the Church of England. And he was able then to limit the privileges of the church, and he was able to consolidate 
increasing spiritual and ecclesiastical power to the monarch. You see how this didn't happen overnight. This was a long, careful, and hard-won legal action. Thomas More, who you see on the left here, of course, was one of the voices of conscience for Henry during this time. Thomas More had been very much in Henry's ear, and Thomas More was, at the end of the day, a faithful Catholic. But it's reached the point by 1532 where More, as a matter of conscience, could no longer serve in Henry's court faithfully. And so with his departure, the influence of the papacy in Henry's court was virtually silenced. And Henry, of course, moved very quickly then to marry Anne, and Cramner rose to be named by Henry as Archbishop of Canterbury. And he moved swiftly to annul Henry's marriage to Catherine. So by 1533, the break with Rome was all but complete when the Pope excommunicated both Henry and Cramner. Cramner, incidentally, is really a central figure in the English Reformation, but he is also what you might regard as the ultimate political survivor in Henry's court. Cramner had notions very early on about developing a unique and distinctive English spirituality and liturgy. But he was very careful in how he shared those and disclosed those in Henry's court, because he did not want to make too many enemies. Cramner was a powerful academic, but he was not a high churchman. He was not really known to Rome. And in fact, he was sent as Henry began this slow testing and probing to see if he could get an annulment with Catherine, Cramner was sent, and this proved to be very fateful, to Germany, to Nuremberg. And he was to follow Charles V around on his travels to try to convince Charles V to allow the annulment to go through. In other words, Cramner was sent to negotiate a political settlement to force the papacy's hand. Charles V didn't want to play, but one of the people that Cramner ran into in Nuremberg was a prominent Lutheran by the name of Andreas Osiander. And it just so happened Andreas Osiander had a lovely niece whom Cramner fell in love with. And rather, rather than just have her as a mistress, he married her and brought her secretly back to England. Now, Henry was not interested at this time in overturning clerical celibacy in England. And so the story is that Cramner, who was swiftly and surprisingly elevated to Archbishop of Canterbury, with incidentally the papacy's approval, as they were trying to curry a favor with Henry, this was prior to the annulment, they were trying to get in his good graces again, Cramner was not a very popular archbishop amongst the clergy. He was seen as an upstart. And on top of that all, the story is that he traveled around the countryside, sometimes with his wife hidden in a box on the back of his wagon. One of these days, I want to find some sources of what her perspective on all of this was. It's also important to point out that the Lutherans were not supportive of the annulment either. This is part of the complexity that was going on at this time. But 
Cramner was able to put together an argument based on some relatively obscure passages of Leviticus and ultimately sat in judgment, pushing the annulment through. After this, Henry became interested in forging an alliance with the German Lutheran princes, mainly to placate potential vengeance, obviously, from Charles V over the dissolution of his marriage. So he welcomed with encouragement from Anne Boleyn and Thomas Cromwell the threefold sacramental understanding of the Lutheran Church, which was baptism, Eucharist or communion, and also reconciliation, as we might call it in our sense, the notion of confessing one's sins. And he allowed then to go forward the dissolution of potentially disloyal monastic communities in England beginning in 1536. And this proved to be key then to the tide, or rather the wave, going back out. Because around this time a conflict, a deep-seated conflict between Anne Boleyn and Thomas Cromwell blew up. Anne Boleyn wanted the money from the monasteries to go to education and charity. Thomas Cromwell was very interested in refilling the crown's coffers to fund military action and also keep the crown ledger in the black. And that all together helped accelerate Anne's fall from the king's favor. So that by the time this period came to an end, the end of 1536, Henry's head had been turned yet again to another young lady of court, Jane Seymour, and Anne lost her head. This last move in particular prompted a popular resistance to the Reformation in England, and it would persist in some form well beyond Henry's reign. Because what happened were many of the emboldened Protestants, as they saw the monasteries fall, and they saw Lutheran influences come into the court, they were emboldened. And these were not Lutherans even. Some of these were Puritans or early proto-Puritans, if you will. And they were iconoclasts. It's hard for us to imagine what it must have been like for congregations on the ground in England at this time, but can you imagine somebody coming into our church and shattering all of our stained glass windows, removing the organ piece by piece, getting up to the bell tower and taking down the bell, taking down our high altar completely, not just moving it, but taking it out completely. Oh, my goodness. And what that must have caused for people on the ground is, is hard to say. And so there was, as there always is in political movements, a counter-movement, and that was a push back. And Thomas Cromwell had tried and succeeded for a time to hide all of this from Henry, but ultimately Henry found out about it, and then of course Thomas Cromwell himself got into trouble because Henry began to push against the Protestants, and he pushed against them particularly because they were trying to deny the real presence of Christ in the sacraments, something that Henry had some training in, and he continued to forbid clerical marriage. Cramner really went into kind of pseudo-hiding at this point and tucked away all of his Protestant proclivities. And Parliament backed Henry's restoration of Catholic sacramental and theological order in 1539. Then he began to crack down on English translations of Scripture. 
became more tightly regulated and ultimately they were restricted because there was a fear that they were supporting heresy. Jane Seymour died, giving birth to Edward. Henry now had a male heir, but he was looking again for a wife, and Thomas Cromwell broke the back of his trust with Henry when he lined up Anne of Cleves, which he thought would be a good match for all kinds of political reasons. But Henry was none too pleased when she arrived at court, not the kind of gal I guess she, he was looking for. And so Thomas Cromwell ultimately lost his head over that mistake. And Henry got into later life believing himself to be spiritually at least a faithful Catholic. When Henry died, Edward VI ascended the throne and came under the protection of Edward Seymour. The Seymours had been long-standing Protestants. Suddenly, the Protestants were on the ascent again. And Cramner saw his opportunity to put forward his long-brewing project, the Book of Common Prayer, which became really the cornerstone of the English Reformation. I have to pause here and say it was none too popular on the ground. It seemed to be forced on people from on high. But Cramner had a Protestant leaning, and that was he believed that the faith of the people could be cultivated with a set of prayers and a book of order in their own language. And in fact, now that the monasticism in England was effectively dead and would remain so for at least another century and a half, he incorporated the monastic offices, what we now know as the daily office brought these to bear. This was also a brief period of radical iconoclasm. And in fact, it was even more severe than it was before. The Protestants were now taking over the church completely. Celibacy was lifted for clergy, and Protestant ministers rather than priests became ascendant. That led to another popular resistance. And the wave went out again. Edward and his untimely death then led to the next period. And here she is, Mary herself, holding a Tudor rose. Can you see that? She ascended the throne in 1553. This is only four years after the Book of Common Prayer was printed and first circulated. And she immediately began a crackdown in an effort to restore the connection of the British people to Rome. She had Cramner arrested and forced him initially to admit heresy in what would have been a critical victory for Catholics in England at the time. However, he withdrew his recantation at the last minute. And that was key because it blunted her political efforts to undermine Protestant influences in the country. And frankly, very early on, Mary's desire was to reach a peaceful reconciliation with Rome and with the British people. But that quickly evaporated with Cramner's recantation. And so there was increasing violence in the ensuing years. And by 1555, Protestant and Catholic violence 
was at one of its zeniths in the English Reformation. Would Mary have succeeded, I wonder, in reconsolidating Catholic England had she lived beyond 1558? It's hard to say. Well, but if, if uh, remember she was married to Philip II of Spain, if that marriage had lasted, she may well have succeeded. She may well have succeeded. Had she had an heir, she yeah. may well have succeeded as well. But she died without an heir, and so waiting in the wings, of course, was the daughter of Anne Boleyn. Now, Elizabeth had to be a Protestant. Maybe not completely by choice. She'd been raised, of course, in a Protestant family, but she knew from the outset that Rome would never, ever recognize her legitimacy. She was the daughter of an illegitimate marriage in Rome's eyes. She was, however, sympathetic with Henry's Catholic leanings, and she also recognized that she needed to bring about some kind of end to the violence, some kind of conciliation. Even if she had to force it politically, she was determined to do this because she saw what had happened to her half-siblings in their courts and also in her father's court. And perhaps we're right to regard her as the brilliant mind of the foundation of classical Anglicanism because she took a very difficult path, taking a hard line against Roman Catholics who wanted to restore allegiance to the papacy, but also against reformers who would radically remove all of the Catholic influences in the church. And so she resurrected, with the help of her court, and the bishops under her, the Book of Common Prayer as a meeting point for both factions. So she could relax the period's tendency to crack down on particular theological viewpoints as long as people were willing to worship and work together for the good of the British people. She would, as she put it, and very famously, not create windows into men's souls. Why did she succeed? I would say probably the biggest reason was her long reign. It allowed her settlement to take root in the English church and began to influence Anglican theology and culture. One of the chief Anglican divines of this period was Richard Hooker, who did something unique in all of the reformations of Europe. He went back to scholasticism and he pulled up reason as a critical piece of Christian discourse and theology, and married that to sola scriptura, so that the Protestant and the Catholic theological worlds were brought together in a unified, systematic way. This made the Church of England unique in all of the Reformation movements. And in fact, Hooker was recognized as one of the great theological voices by none other than the Pope at the time. And of course, then the Book of Common Prayer took root in the English language and influenced people we've never heard of before, like John Donne and William Shakespeare. So that I don't know if Luther influenced Shakespeare as much as Luther's influence through the Book of Common Prayer. There is a comparison between Shakespeare's development of the English language 
And Luther is developed into the German language. Aha. I think. Yeah. And this predates, of course, then the other great influence on the English language, which would be the later King James Version of the Bible, published under James I, Elizabeth's successor. Elizabeth was also able to leverage, I think, popular fatigue from the violent clashes that preceded her between the Reformers and the Catholics. There was an inherent pragmatism in English society, and she brought with her a stability that lent weight to successful military and economic developments for England over her long reign. But historians also would argue she didn't fully succeed because, of course, the Puritans would return with a vengeance in the 17th century, as would those who were inclined to a more thoroughgoing Catholicism and wanting to restore English loyalty to Rome. And in fact, that would form a significant foundation for the English civil wars of that later era. So what I would like to leave you with are just a few notions, and then we'll open up the floor to questions. And one of them is, is the Reformation a singular point in history, or is it something now that is deep in our DNA? We have, for instance, in our church enshrined reforming and revolutionary and democratic ideas into the Constitution. The Episcopal Church is constantly reforming itself through our actions of democratic bodies. We also have a divide in the contemporary Anglican communion that can be traced back to theological differences between an evangelical or a Puritan and an Anglo-Catholic faction of the church. And that was enshrined in two missionary institutions that came out of the Church of England that spread throughout the empire in the 19th century and brought their versions of Christianity to all kinds of different places in the world. And then we have all been influenced in the church in the Western United States by what became known as the Oxford Movement in the 19th century, which was a push beginning in England to restore a lot of Catholic theology, teaching, and liturgy. And the pinnacle of that, you might argue, is the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, which brought back Eucharist as a central piece of our worship life. And many of you remember what worship life was like before that. That was not Elizabethan Anglicanism. That was Puritan Anglicanism, going back to the 17th and 18th centuries. And then, of course, we have in our own church ongoing fomented schism, as we've seen most recently over women's ordination and human sexuality. And this is a hallmark of all Reformed traditions. And it goes back to the argument that was put before Luther when he was on trial in the Diet of Verm, when it was pointed out that if everyone can read and interpret the Bible now, what's going to keep us all together? How are we going to remain part of one another? So I'll stop there, and we'll open up the floor to questions and thoughts and comments. You left me feeling a little bit depressed because you asked the question, have we learned anything from the Reformation? I tend to think we haven't. We, there's this divisiveness in our being. It always comes to the surface. It doesn't take too much to create schism and division. Uh, the beauty of the Church of England has been, or the Episcopalian Church, has been 
more li likely, more susceptible to reform and keeping up with the times than some other churches. But this great lady, uh, she had incredible uh, challenges to meet. She had these Jesuits creeping into England in their hundreds, going into priest holes, great houses all over England, trying to create revolution again, mm -hmm. trying to bring back Roman Catholicism. But she had wonderful advisors, the Cecil family, one after the other, great administrators, the best secret service the world had ever seen, who was smoking out these Jesuits everywhere. But uh, I think, um, what's that? Well, something she had learned from her father, oh, yes. and certainly from her half-sister as well, but that ruthlessness, again, always had a motive, and that was how do we preserve stability? in a time of uncertainty and great division. Usually the answer was slaughter. I mean, she took to the north of England, where the bulk of the Catholics were, and just got rid of them. Yeah. A lot of uh, bad things were done in the name of religion. And as and we said earlier, not, not until Westphalia, which was 1648, was there some reconciliation. And even then it wasn't complete, but there was an acceptance that each prince in his territory could determine the religion in his area. Who knows how long that stability could last? Well, one of the things that I always find interesting when you're looking at this time is what came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, was it the rise of the middle class and a democratization of society, um, an equalization of society that, that gave rise to these movements in church wanting also... Um, more of a voice. Um, I just think it's really interesting. Remember, it was Erasmus that laid the egg. But uh, your point is really one economics and politics, I would say. You had throughout the Renaissance tremendously growth in trade. And after the horrible plague of the 1340s, you had a resurgence in population growth, trade, prosperity, guilds, merchant guilds. Um, so you had, you, you had a prosperous Europe, particularly Germany was very prosperous uh, during this predating Reformation. So why should they be sending all their wealth down to the papacy uh, and to, to feed the church, which was patent there, uh, corrupt? So I think economic issues are certainly a factor. I'm not saying they were more important than faith, but when faith was something you began to suspect as being not really worth your time. You could find a better way to worship. You were tempted to look for another way, and I think Luther certainly provided another way. But he opened the door for other people, like the Moravian Brothers, the Anabaptists, all these people who had very different views from Luther and fragmented the whole nature of Christendom. And it continues to this day, very fragmented. This, uh, coming back to, to England, uh, Henry, Henry disinherited all the monasteries and, and took their treasures. And uh, Currently, the, these monasteries are, uh, have remnants in rather isolated places in England. What were the monasteries actually doing for the people at the time that they actually worked? I'll take a stab at that. Um, and only a preliminary step, because it's not something I've studied in depth. 
but my understanding is that this is particularly true in northern England, um, which, is, which is why the dissolutions of the monastery became very problematic politically for Henry in the northern part of England. But they were, they were almost like, almost like, churches are on the ground in the United States today. They were institutions that helped hold the community together. And they had some level, I think, of economic influence, as well as being touchstones in the community for learning and for succor and for comfort and spiritual guidance. So when Cromwell leads the dissolution of the monasteries for, I think, less than admirable reasons, it fomented a virtual rebellion in the north of England because it was as if, heaven forbid, the federal government were to march into Mill Valley and shut down all of the churches and all of the, the civil service institutions on the ground and say, we're taking over and you owe loyalty only to us. I mean, we would be furious. Very importantly, the monasteries provided for the poor yes. were always welcome. And when you abolished uh, that, a wealthy state, and a mini wealthy state in many communities was the monastery. When that went, what happened to the poor? The state eventually had to build up some kind of minimum help for the poor. The, the outhouses, so the poor houses all over England were built at that time. Um, so they had to replace the, it's like the government, government having to replace expenditure from the private sector with its own expenditure. So you, you robbed the monasteries, but then you had to pay back to maintain the basic livelihood for poor people. So it's not certain what happened to the money. Much of it went to build the great navy. England suddenly had the greatest navy the world had ever seen. The huge ships that Henry built. Uh, but warfare came along, and he lost it all. <coughs> Get their money to start with if they were working in such poor areas. They, they got them, I think, through gifts from the people on the ground. And they had been there. They had been on the ground from the very early medieval period. So they were long-standing institutions. And this is why they were so attractive, I think, to Henry's court, because they had amassed a great amount of treasure over time. Probably gifts as well from the aristocracy um, helped maintain them. And that was one way, I think, for the aristocracy also to, to, to try to put forward a face of giving to the poor and the needy. You backed indulgences. You, know, you, pay, you pay to the local monastery. And that gives you some salvation, some possibility of getting out of purgatory. And, and much financial system going on. And, and the flip side of that, too, I mean, I, I don't want to paint the monasteries as sort of idyllic. Um, because I'm sure there was corruption, as there was throughout the monastic system in Europe at the time. But the other thing to keep in mind was that they, they had some independence from Rome, which meant that the resources that they gleaned from the people could stay local and could be used locally in a way that the annats and um, the direct indulgences and some of the other resources that were going directly to Rome would not. So there was that appeal as well. The other thing about the riches of the monasteries that is easy to forget, I think, post-purgatory in our tradition, is that that wasn't just about money. That was about 
soliciting the prayers of future generations mm -hmm. for your benefit. Mm -hmm. So just as we still have tiny little remnants of this, mostly post-Oxford movement, but every stained glass window that has some the donor's name on it is a partly a cultural inheritance from a moment in which part of doing good, part of taking care of your community and taking care of your own soul at the same time would be to do something like buy vestments, put down a new carpet, things that we think of as service. We're part of the, the, um, the shared communal structure of the medieval church and that wasn't just about getting your stamp up there. It was also about being a friend to the church in a way that would require every member of that congregation to pray for you on a repetitive, ongoing basis, especially in big annual festivals of remembrance, such as we did a tiny little remembrance of today, mm -hmm. that you'd read the role of previous donors from the church, which sometimes went back hundreds of years, mm -hmm. and to know as a member of that community that if you gave, you would be entered into the list of people who would have the entire town praying for your salvation. Yeah, but you must have been enormously comforting and a source of great work. You wouldn't get you out of purgatory, that was Luther's point. By all means, but do good for, works, for, but, but don't this expect is, to get out of purgatory. That was Luther's point, but I'm thinking about from the perspective of the people for whom giving up purgatory and the prayers for the dead was actually a major source of the counter-reformation, was not just about corruption right. or about... Um, exciting against the big guys. It was also that there were many, many thousands of people for whom losing the ability to pray for the souls of those they yep. loved was morally and spiritually unacceptable. It was simply too painful. Well, it was, it was I, I, would, I would say exactly, it was, it was an attack on their culture. You know, they had known this. This was the reality. I mean, I, and stripping I read it as, the churches was also stripping the memory of the community. Absolutely. It's embodied love. It was, it was to create a vacuum. It was like I said in my sermon today, it was to pull up the roots and burn them, which, which must have been radically disorienting for many people on the ground. You know the book Stripping of the Altars? Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. Uh, okay. Other questions? And how did it record? <laughs> <laughs> This is a very, very complicated period of it history. Really I was surprised that we didn't get questions on the cycle of penitence. <laughs> I found that very complicated. I'm glad people didn't ask me to explain it. We'll have to talk about it. The other thing I just wanted to point out, John Knox is an interesting example oh. of being caught in, in this model. Would John Knox have been oh, as no. inflammatory a Protestant, as puritanical a Presbyterian, were it not for the aggressive push of Mary when she came to power. Because when Mary became queen, she exiled many of the Protestants, including John Knox, and it was at that point that John Knox engaged with some very radical people on the continent. And it, you know, we can play this game all day with history, right? What if that had not happened and John Knox had remained in England? Would Scottish Presbyterianism have been as radical as it became? I wonder. I leave it to our Scott to well, answer that. I, I can tell you, there's a famous lady called Jenny Geddes, and when they tried to impose the Episcopalian religion, our religion, on the Scots Presbyterians in the 1640s. Oh, good luck with that. Jenny, everyone had a three-footed three stool you sat on, and Jenny got up when a bishop, a bishop came into a Presbyterian church to give a sermon because the English were trying to impose Episcopalianism in Scotland. <laughs> She got up her, put through, got her stool, threw it at the bishop and said, you'll now preach papacy in my lug. 
on that note, I think we'll stop. <laughs> Thank you all so much for your time today. Thank you again, John. Thank you.